The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. And he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house Some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. You may be seated. If you're in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join the volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign. And if it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Good morning. This is your first time here. My name is Jared. I'm also on staff with the others at Restoration Southside, and we're delighted that you're here with us this morning. Thank you for braving the cold, rainy, wet, ugly weather to come out and be with us. We're certainly glad you have. Jesus has been walking through this book of Mark, and he's, he's shown that he has power over the storm. He's shown that he has power 
over demons. He's shown here that he has power over sickness. And this is where Mark preps us for the ending. That Jesus has power even over death. Often when we're walking through uh, passages lined up in a row, I'll read to my kids whatever passage is coming up. It's like kind of doubling down on my homework. I'm reading to them, but it's also what I'm going to preach on Sunday. And I read to them this passage out of the Jesus Storybook Bible. And um, when, when I finished, my son Knox said, ooh, that's a good one. <clears throat> and I said, yeah. And I said, but how do you feel Jairus? What, how do you, what do you think Jairus felt when he's got Jesus and he's getting, her, getting him towards her daughter and this person gets in his way and then he finds out along the way his daughter has died. And he said, I bet that guy was lit up. Which I think is cool 12-year-old for super angry. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Does Jesus have power over nature? Power over demons? Power over sickness? Power over death? Does Jesus have power over your story and mine? Let's pray. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for your Holy Spirit and I ask God that your Spirit right in these moments would bring life. We acknowledge that Jesus can bring life. We ask that he would do it again in this room. Even this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Cormac is my 10-year-old son. I remember distinctly when he was a baby that he was not a good sleeper. And so we took him to the doctor, and the doctor said, this baby is perfectly healthy. And then he looked at us and said, and y'all look terrible. And we said, yeah, he's not a very good sleeper. And he said, well, this baby's healthy enough and big enough. It's time for him to cry it out. You're a parent, and you know what psychological torture that is. Not necessarily for the child, but for yourself. You just lay in bed, both wide awake, staring at the ceiling, thinking about how horrible of a human being you are. That this helpless, innocent little thing just needs your presence, and you are on purpose denying them your presence. You could just wonder what they're thinking in their tiny little heads. My dad really cared about my hurt, my fear. He would come for me. Why is he delaying? If he delays, it must mean he doesn't care. It's the same exact sentiment in the passage. Why would Jesus delay? There's a 12-year-old little girl's life on the line, and Jairus is standing there thinking, why would you delay? Why would you delay? If you knew what you were doing, if you, if you really cared you wouldn't have delayed Jesus. And the reason the story is so powerful, even for those of us who have not lost a child, is because we know what it's like to feel like Jesus delays. Jesus, if you had showed up here and now, here when I asked, if things could have been made better, and now there's so much worse. It's so much more complicated, so much more difficult. Why did you delay, Jesus? This morning we're going to look at that. 
Why would Jesus delay? Well, first, let's look at a dying girl and a powerful leader. A dying girl and a powerful leader. Look with me in verses 21 through 24. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. Then he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogues, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Just to give you a sense of who this is, give you a sense of the story, Jairus, it says, is a synagogue leader. That means he's a man of influence. People would have had to base their whole lives, their whole week around the temple, and he would have been one who was in power and influence inside of the temple. People would have cared about his opinion. People would have wanted him to show up at their parties. This is somebody that you want to be seen with. He's a powerful leader and a man of influence. Things have gone well for him. And yet, with all of his power and with all of his influence, with all of his spirituality, he can't save his 12-year-old girl from death. And so he comes to Jesus the way many of us come to Jesus, in crisis. He comes to Jesus in crisis. Crisis, can you send you running straight to Jesus? And I think it's really cool here that Jesus doesn't pull him aside and say, oh, You've been ignoring my teachings. You've sort of made me feel uncomfortable at the temple, and now you want help, huh? Jesus looks at him and says, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. You see, crisis can cause us to run to Jesus. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know if Jesus would even take a call from me at this point. I've been running from him for so long, doing whatever I want for so long, and now I'm sick, or now she's sick, and I don't know if he'll even take a call. Jesus says, you can run to him in crisis. You can run to him in crisis, and he's actually going to give you so much more than meeting you in your crisis, and we're going to see that as the minutes play out. But I want you to see that there's only one way to encounter Jesus Only one way to encounter Jesus. It's not with your shoulders, your arms crossed. Looking with cynicism. It's not meeting Him on your terms. Agreeing, Him agreeing with some of what you feel and think. The only way to meet Jesus is to fall desperate on your knees. As powerful as this guy knows, he knows I have to come and fall on my knees and implore Jesus. It actually shows great faith. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He shows faith, but he shows it from his knees. And I want you to see that. We think our need, our crisis, our problem causes Jesus to stay away from us. It's your need, your crisis, your problem that engages Him. When He looks over at the hill and sees all these people on the hill, they would have worn white clothes because the sun was so hot, sort of reflect the sun. 
And when he sees them all scattered out over this hill, he says he looked at them, all these people, all these sinners, and he says he felt compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. Your neediness, your messiness, your sinfulness, your sickness, your disease, it's not a problem from him. It's what engages his, not apathy, not annoyance. It engages his compassion for you. Jesus sees your need. Jesus feels your crisis. He's tired. He's just been dealing with all these people running him out of town. He's just gotten off the boat and he's willing to help. You see, need engages his compassion. There's one other thing I want to show you and then we'll move on to the woman. But Jesus hates death. Jesus hates death. And this is one of our first pictures of it we see in Mark. He hates it. It frees us up to hate it too. You can come to Jesus on your knees, in your need, and know that He is looking at you with eyes of compassion. We sort of pause that story and then we see this woman, this desperate outcast. Let's look with me in verses 24 and 25. And he went with them and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and he had, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard about the, report, the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garment, I will be made well. This woman is the unlikelier in the story to get Jesus' attention. You see, like I said before, Jairus is a man of influence. So if he comes to Jesus, people are looking. People that follow Jesus, people that follow Jairus, they're looking at him. There's this, engage, there's this engagement where he says, this guy needs this guy's help? Wow. This is going to benefit Jesus. Jairus is a man about town. This is going to help Jesus to help Jairus. But not this one. This woman is a nobody. In those times, in those days, shamefully so, just her being a woman would mean that she shouldn't engage with the rabbi. Just her being a woman. And then the fact that she's ceremonially unclean. Ceremonially unclean is because of this bleeding. We don't understand medically exactly what was going on with her, but we know that she had this bleeding problem. And so she was in a constant sense of ceremonially uncleanness. That means she couldn't even go to the temple. She couldn't go and have sacrifice made for her sins. She couldn't have friends that she ran into in the courtyard. Anything she touched became ceremonially unclean. Anyone she touched became ceremonially unclean. So she's a woman and she's ceremonially unclean and she can't go to the temple to worship, to deal with her sin, to deal with her God. And she's poor. It says it right in the text. She spent all her money on doctors and it's just made it worse. And she's an outcast. Should someone who's allowed... Excuse me, should someone who is, can't touch someone else or they'll be made ceremonially unclean be in a crowd of people where everyone's bumping elbows? 
It's one of the reasons we know is because in a minute here when Jesus says, who touched me? She's like, she waits. She knows very well that the people around her know very well that she shouldn't be there. And I'll pause us right there for just a second to say, Jesus continues to pursue those, the margin, the least, the little, the lost, the lonely. He's just helped this demoniac who used to cut himself and shriek and live in tombs and nobody wanted anything to deal with. And now he's taking this dying woman, this unclean woman, this poor woman, this outcast. And then soon he's going to touch this little girl, this dead body. When Jesus touches the woman, he's ceremonially unclean. When Jesus touches the little girl, he will make himself ceremonially unclean. Jesus It's a picture. He makes himself unclean for us, for the needy. If you think I'm too unclean for Jesus, I'm too messed up, there's too many stories, there's too much history, I'm too unclean for Jesus, that's who he draws near to. The outcast, the least, the little, the lonely, the lost. Verse 23 and 28. I want you to see how close it is to faith that they both express and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she may be well and live. And verse down in 28, for she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. Alistair Begg said, she touches him, but more importantly, she trusts him. In other words, there were a bunch of people bumping into him that day. That's why the disciples react like, what do you mean who touched you? Everyone's touching you. But she knew that there's something about him that'll make her well again. It's that kind of faith that we're supposed to carry, that we're supposed to cling to. Some of you who do trust in Christ, you stopped feeling that way about him a long time ago. He's this thing I've added to my life and I'm kind of glad that he's here, but I don't have any real faith that he could actually make things better for me. I don't believe that he's actually still at work on my story and in my life. I don't believe he could actually fix my problems, my addiction, my finances, my my broken family. Yes, yes, Jesus is good and the forgiveness of sins, but I don't believe he can actually do something. But not this woman, not this outcast. She knows that if I touch him... I will be made well. Jairus knows if Jesus touches my daughter, she will be made well. Jesus focuses on the outcast. And we're going to continue to do that. Restoration Southside will continue to focus on the margin. And it's not because we don't care for the people who are showing up. It's because Jesus focused on those who are on the outside. Those who don't feel like they deserve a spot at the table. And so that's who we'll focus on. And the good news is, is when we focus on those who don't feel like they deserve a seat at the table who are out there, you know when you walk in this door, immediately you're reminded again that I'm those people. 
I'm the one who doesn't deserve a seat at the table. So the gospel is for those of us who trust in him and those of us who don't trust in him. Now, interestingly, she immediately knows she's healed. It says right there in verse 29, she knows she's healed. In verse 30, it says he knows power has gone out from him. Now, there's mystery here. We don't know what it's like. I've never been 100% God and 100% man, so I don't know what it feels like to have power go out. There's even a little more mystery. It seems genuinely that Jesus doesn't know who touched him. He knows that power has left him, but he doesn't know who has touched him, and there's mystery there. We should get comfortable with mystery as we follow Jesus. We're not going to understand it all. But he says, who touched me? And you love the disciples. It's so snarky. All these people around you, Jesus, and you ask us who touched you, you just want to pause them and be like, guys, it just gets worse for you. (laughs) Just be quiet. But they come at him hard. Jesus, how could you ask us this? And yet Jesus says, he continues to look around. He continues to look around. And then finally, listen to 33. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. I'm fascinated by that. Came in fear and trembling. Do you remember? Jesus is standing on the boat with his disciples. And the waves are are roaring. And it's probably lightning and thundering and it's raining hard. And they're terrified. And Jesus stands up and hushes the storm. And then it says, they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They were terrified. They're more scared after the one who can cause the storm to stop than they were scared of the storm. Last week, we just talked about the demoniac. There's this guy who screams and cuts himself with stones and he's crazy and he's been taken over by demons and Jesus takes all of the demons and casts them out of him and they go into pigs and the pigs drown. And then the guy is sitting there in his right mind clothed, no longer screaming. And then the people get terrified. As we said last week, Mark is a study of fear versus faith. And this woman has been set free from 12 long years of bleeding. 12 long years of disappointment. And doctors, 12 long years of writing checks that she couldn't couldn't afford to write. And she finally felt somewhere deep inside her that God has moved, that she's been made whole, and she's terrified. I think it's this this sense that we think God might have power, but surely He doesn't have tenderness. Maybe God can move. Maybe God can do great things. Maybe He can. But surely, even if He does do something great, we need to keep our distance. And this sweet, sweet woman for 12 years, she's finally cured and she's terrified. She falls to her knees he came and came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and he's told him the whole truth. Jesus dignifies her. He listens to her story. And he puts the miracle back on her and says, your faith, your faith has made you well. You believed against all odds, against 12 years of disappointment, you believed your faith has made you well. 
Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Friends, for us, you can always interrupt him. He invites you to do so. And when you interrupt him, expect this tenderness, this compassion. He's willing to be interrupted. He's tired from the boat. Jairus gets his attention. He's willing to go help Jairus. He's in the middle of helping Jairus. And this woman falls on her knees and begs for help and he helps her. Jesus draws near, not just with power, but with tenderness, with compassion. You see the patience and the, and the compassion. You see the power. But then lastly, you see this dead girl and a worried father. So he set out to help Jairus, his daughter, who's very, very sick, gets interrupted by this outcast. Look down with me in verse 35 through 43. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As Knox said, the Bible doesn't teach us exactly the psychological experience of Jairus, but I bet he was lit up. Imagine you're Jairus walking through this whole thing. You finally got your hands on the miracle worker, and he's following you. He's going back, and he's going to change everything. Your 12-year-old little girl who's gasping, and he's going to put her hands on it. It's going to, everything's going to be better. And yet this woman falls at her knees and it says she told him the whole truth. She's sitting there recounting her past. I've got the miracle worker to come. He's coming. And I finally feel a little hope and relief. And then this woman this unclean woman, this outsider interrupted Jesus and now she's telling him her whole story and he's getting more and more panicked, more and more upset. And then sure enough, he sees friends who he's just left at his house and he sees their eyes walk up. Can you imagine what's going on with Jairus? And they say, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher any, anymore? And it's got to be some mix of devastation and rage. She's dead we missed our window by that much? Imagine the fire in his eyes as he looked down on this, this poor woman, the outcast, the confusion, the devastation, the rage. I was here first, Jesus. Do you know who I am, Jesus? I'm Jairus, a synagogue leader. No one can even talk or touch to this woman. I was here first. I have a little girl. She's seven. She's not yet 12. But she is precious to me. And I can't imagine. Carsey is sick and I, I can't do anything about it. And now I have the attention of Jesus and he's on the way, but now he's been distracted and now I'm headed to a funeral? Friends, don't you have things like that in your story? Maybe it could have gotten much better if Jesus had shown up and you thought maybe, you dared to think maybe it'll get much better if Jesus would just answer this prayer. And then he doesn't. And you're left there with a coffin. You're left there with disappointment. You're left there with a bill, an invoice you can't pay. You're left there with a divorce. 
You're left with there with the shame of an addiction. Jesus could have intervened and he didn't. C.S. Lewis says this, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. He's talking about losing his wife. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning, I keep on swallowing. Lewis continues, at other times it felt like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, or perhaps hard to take it in, or perhaps hard to want to take it in. Lewis is talking about how the sensation of fear and the sensation of grief are so closely linked. And that's what this man has experienced. I'm afraid we're running out of time. I'm afraid we're running out of time. And now we're out of time. What's the point for you? The point for you is there are times when you're going to feel genuine fear Maybe it's a health scare. Maybe it's a reputation scare. Maybe it's something that you wish God would intervene. You're going to feel genuine fear. Breathe. Just breathe for a moment and remember that it may not feel like Jesus is paying attention. Jairus had to have felt that. It may not feel like Jesus is paying attention, but Jesus knows exactly where he's going. So when you're in the moment of the fear and the anxiousness, you have to breathe and go, Jesus knows what he's doing. I don't like this. I don't understand this. Jesus knows what he's doing. He is going to go exactly where he wants to go. And one other thing here, friends, I want to show you is these these people that show up from Jairus' daughter's house, first of all, they need to work on their delivery. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Why trouble the teacher? I want us to be the kind of friends who are constantly saying to our friends, let's go and bother the teacher. Let's go and interrupt him. Jesus loves to be interrupted. We see it in this text and many others. He says, he looks at this man, just envision the scene for a half second. His friends show up, And he didn't want to see his friends because he knows those are the guys who were just at my house. His friends show up and they're like, start nodding and your daughter is dead. And then he's filled with that sense, maybe of rage, maybe of devastation. We're not exactly sure. And he looks up and Jesus looks straight at him. Don't be afraid. Just believe. That's what he looks at us and says in our mess of the things that can overwhelm your story. And I don't know what overwhelms you in your story. Not each one of you. But he looks at you and says, don't be afraid. Just believe. Believe that I can do more than you think I can. Believe that I'm listening. Believe that I'm paying attention. Believe that I will come through. Just believe. And then Jesus goes with them and he, he, he shows up at the house, this this house, and at first you can imagine that the outside of the house is loud and the inside of the house is quiet. The outside of the house, there's professional mourners there. Professional mourners are, even a poor man, Alistair Begg said this, even a poor man was supposed to hire one mourner and two flute players at a funeral. In those days, culturally, so that you could grieve and wail and be as upset, tear your clothes as you wanted to sort of let your neighbors know why in the world are they all screaming over there. 
It was sort of a, a statement to the community that we're in a time of mourning. So you would hire somebody to come and cry. Come and play the flute. So that people walking by would be like, oh, she's been sick for so long. She's gone. She's gone. You can imagine that there's a crowd forming outside. The little girl down the street who so many people were fond of, so many people, so many people liked and loved, and, and, and then now there's a crowd in the and the mourner has shown up and the flutes have started and people are outside and everyone begins to start grieving as a community. They're wailing. And Jesus walks up and says, she's not dead, she sleeps. Jesus knows that she's dead. It's an analogy. He's saying to me, I have the power that I can wake someone up from sleeping and I can wake somebody up from death. And they laugh at him. They laugh at him. But what Jesus is trying to show them for the first time in Mark, things are different now forever. I don't just have power over the storm. I don't just have power over evil, over the sin in your life, over disease. I have power over death. It's like in John 11. One of the commentators pointed me here. Jesus is one of his best friends dies. And he finally, he delays in going. Just like he did here. Delays for Jairus. He delays then and goes, and, and Lazarus dies. And when he shows up, Martha and Mary are there, and they're grieving and they're weeping. And you know what they say to him? You delayed. They said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know even now that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus, checking what kind of faith she has, says, your brother will rise again. It's like, you know who you're dealing with, right? And she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And it's almost as if he interrupts her and says, I am the resurrection. He distinguishes himself here from everyone else. Not just power over storms and sin and evil and sickness, but power over death. Paul will say it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, that then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Jesus is now here in Mark 4 and ultimately in Mark 15, he is, in Mark 16, He is showing that He has power even over death. That this, this girl's little story is actually a piece of your story. And Jesus comes as the one who can end death, begin death to get working backwards, and they laugh at him. Well, friends, someday on that great day, you and I will laugh. We will laugh at cancer. We will laugh at Alzheimer's. We will laugh at STDs. We will laugh at heart disease. We will laugh at obesity. We will laugh at ALS. We will laugh at COVID-19. They all have an expiration date because the one we follow has power over death. So he puts all of the people out of the room because this is about Jairus and this is about this little girl. Not all the professional wailing and moaning. This is about a family who's been wrecked by the fall and he puts everybody out Listen to this.
And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with amazement. This little girl. You see it? Death is not the way that it's supposed to be. And he's come to bring an end to death. But we get a glimpse of it right here. He, they move from the outside noisiness into this quiet, dark room where they've probably put covers over the windows so that people aren't peering in. And all you can probably hear is interrupted sniffling from mom and dad who's choking back tears. And this cold little 12-year-old sitting in the corner of the room, dead. And Jesus touches her hand, making himself ceremonially unclean, and says, little girl, I say to you, rise up. Jesus has power over death. Jesus has tenderness for those who are in need, those who are sick, those who are dying, those who are dead, those who are sinful, those who are addicted. Jesus has time and tenderness for those in need, and he has power to do something about it. Lord, I want you to see here is that you can interrupt Jesus because of his huge compassion. You can trust in Jesus because of his character. You can trust in Jesus because of his power that Jesus is working to undo death. There's a scene, and we'll close here. There's a scene out of C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. For those of you who haven't read it or haven't seen it, it's a story really ultimately about Jesus, Aslan, the lion. And they kill Aslan, the queen, the witch, she kills him. And the two little girls, Susan and Lucy, they can barely handle it. They, they can barely stop themselves from shaking, from crying, because Aslan is dead. The moon was getting low and thin clouds were passing across her, but they could still see the shape of the great lion laying dead in his bonds. And down, they both felt knelt in wet grass and kissed his cold face and stroked his beautiful fur. Well, what was left of it anyway? And they cried until they could cry no more. At that moment, they heard from them, behind them, a loud noise, a great cracking, a deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. What's that, said Lucy, clutching Susan's arm. I feel afraid to turn around, said Susan. Something awful is happening. They're doing something worse to him, talking about the dead Aslan. Lucy said, come on. She turned, pulling Susan around with her. They didn't see that most important thing until they did. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Oh, 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 cried the two girls rushing back to the table. Oh, it's too bad, cried Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It's more magic. They looked round there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for apparently it had grown again, stood Aslan himself.
Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as if frightened. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. Friends, we follow a king who has put to death our death by becoming, by experiencing death himself. He reaches for us. We can put our trust in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you that you look at us with compassion and that your compassion is matched and joined with power. And I pray that you would help us to trust in you. That whether it's crisis, being overwhelmed, being afraid, whatever it is that draws us to our knees, God, I pray that you would meet us there in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. That whether it's crisis, being overwhelmed, being afraid, whatever it is that draws us to our knees, God, I pray that you would meet us there in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.